You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Good morning, everyone. Happy almost New Year's. I guess everybody's got some good New Year's traditions. I love to see it. Uh, like, like Adam mentioned, my name is Alex Glasson. I am a pastoral resident here at GBC. And I especially want to say for all my kids in the room, welcome. Happy New Year. Can I, let, let's all just say Happy New Year on three. One, two, three. Happy New Year. Yeah, it is so good to be welcoming in the new year together. I hope you guys had a great Christmas, had a lot of fun, and that you're looking forward to the new year. So when I was a kid, I loved family traditions, hence the the question for today. And one of my favorite traditions that we would do uh, every year as a kid was actually around New Year's. And some of my family is here today, actually, they will remember this very well. So every year, my family, when I was a kid, we would go up north to celebrate New Year's. And we we had a little cottage up north, uh, and we would go up there, get a big group of people, and we would cram into this little cottage for maybe four to five days. And I loved it as a little kid. I would look forward to it all throughout the year because always when we were up there, we would do these same things each year. We would make butterscotch crunchies, which is a a fun dessert that my family made. We would uh, play a bunch of games that my oldest brother would bring, uh, that that his friends would bring that I'd never played before. And I was the youngest of five kids, and so I always got to hang with the older kids when we were there, which I loved, I remember, as a kid. But always the highlight of our time when we were up north for this week was we would go skiing for a few days. Uh, And that was such a blast. It was one of my introductions to skiing was these trips. And I remember this annual tradition. I think the thing that I loved the most about it was it sort of just, it reminded me, you know, who I was. It helped me relax. It helped me let go of the worries that I had maybe from school or the social pressures. And it reminded me that life was good, that I was part of a family, that I belonged somewhere. Traditions have sort of a certain way of grounding us. They remind us who we are, maybe when we've, we've drifted from that, or in just the busyness of life. Those traditions help sort of keep us rooted. And so today we are going to be talking about a specific tradition or practice of God's people called the Sabbath, a weekly practice. And the purpose of the Sabbath is to help God's people cultivate a heart of worship. So we're going to be diving into the Old Testament to a psalm that I don't know if I've ever heard preached before, but it's Psalm 92, and as Adam said, that's on page 498 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you want to grab that and flip there with me. Uh, This psalm is titled, A Song for the Sabbath. So before we go on, uh, let's just pray for our time together and invite, commit our time really to the Lord. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for who you are. Father, we praise you for being a God of Sabbath rest. Lord, speak to us this morning as we open your word. In six days, you made the world, and on the seventh day, you rested. Teach us again this morning as we head into the new year what it means to rest in you, that we may carry your rest into this new year. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, before we actually read Psalm 92, I want to give some important background on this text and sort of the Psalms in general uh, that give us a little bit of context for, you know, what is happening in this Psalm in particular. So as many of you have probably heard, the Psalms are like the prayer book of the Old Testament. They're kind of like the worship songs of the Old Testament, and they guided the corporate worship experience of Israel. So God's people in the Old Testament would often get together and they would actually uh, pray these Psalms together. But they would just be prayed. They were often sung. Uh, That was what they were intended to be done. And so there's something sort of about singing that really helps God's Word come deep into our souls. So that's how the Psalms were used in the Old Testament. But even all throughout Christian history, uh, past the cross of Jesus, the Psalms have played a central role in Christian worship. So in most services all throughout the history of the church, you know, psalms have been incorporated into those services. So there would often be a reading from the New or Old Testament uh, for the sermon that day, and then there would be a psalm in most worship services throughout the ages. And even in different communities, we could see the importance that psalms have played uh, by how often they've been prescribed to be read. So, for example, the Book of Common Prayer prescribes for all of the psalms, all 150, to be prayed each month. Uh, or even in some monastic communities, they would pray through all of the psalms each week, which is wild if you think about 150 psalms in one week. But that shows us all throughout church history how much we have loved the psalms. And it's precisely for this reason. The psalms teach us how to pray. If anyone here wants to grow in prayer, it's best to be immersed in the psalms, to be soaking in them, because the psalms teach us how to pray. And prayer is how we live out our relationship with God. The Psalms, they help us to do that. And again, like I mentioned, uh, this Psalm is specifically called a song for the Sabbath. So likely in Israel's, you know, Old Testament history, Israel would come together on the Sabbath and they would actually sing this Psalm together every Sabbath. So I want you to kind of picture all of God's people coming together once a week to sing this song. That's how central this Psalm was. Okay. That's a little bit of the necessary background. Let's actually read the text. This is God's word. Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, For behold, your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. 
Okay, as we dig into this text together, I have three main points to guide our time. And hey, for my second sermon, they even alliterate. So the first one, the goal of life. The second, the gift of Sabbath. And third, the great Sabbath. All right, to begin, let's start with the first point. First one, the goal of life. So the goal of life is work. Work and work, right? Wrong. (laughs) The goal of life is worship, is worship. Work is good. Let me emphasize that. We are not doing a message this morning on Sabbath to say that you should all go quit your jobs and live as monks and do nothing but read the Bible all day. God created work in the beginning before the fall. God is passionate about good work, and we should be too. It's just not the primary reason he created you. Some time ago, I remember reading a book where the author actually asked, what do you think God expects from you each day? In other words, how does God expect you to fill your time? And I remember as I sat and I thought about what God expects from me, I often tried to give my thoughts, my answer to that question. And I sort of ended up with a to-do list of all sorts of things. Okay, well, God expects me to love my wife, love my kids, go to church, take out the trash, be a good neighbor, all of that stuff. But as I kind of kept reflecting, I realized that something more basic boiled down, something that I realized I could be doing all of those good things while missing this very central core. And I think life can often feel like a treadmill, like you're just going and going and going, but you're not actually getting anywhere. And that often is the feeling that many of us wrestle with. I think it's probably one of the main reasons why many of us wrestle with the concept of burnout, because we just feel like we have to keep going and doing more and more and more. And it's just easy to get lost sometimes in life. But as I sought to answer the question the book asked me, I remember the simple answer that came to my mind was worship him. What, what does God expect from me every day but to worship him? I knew it was the answer. But in all my busyness trying to do things for God, I had actually stopped, or I had actually failed to stop to actually worship or praise him. So when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Or the Westminster Catechism puts it this way, the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is man ultimately created for? Why did God make you? What did he make you to do? The answer, man's chief end, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's speaking of worshiping God. That's what you and I were created to do. Or if you're still not convinced, here's Jesus' words when he's talking with the woman at the well in John 4, verse 23. He says, But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Your worship is what the Father is seeking. Nothing less. And you and I were created to worship. If you and I live and we work and work and work, but we never worship, we fail to fulfill God's desire and his design for our lives. Okay, so the, the, psalm, the, the word worship or praise can sometimes be a little bit misleading for us. We might, always, we might get into the habit of thinking that this is just singing. That's all that worship is. And certainly singing is part of the package deal that is worship. But worship is much more of a of a heart posture towards God. 
So we're actually going to look into this psalm in particular to give us some cues of what worship really is. Okay, here is what the psalmist writes in verse 4. He says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. The first part of worship that the psalmist highlights here is joy. Joy, enjoying God. Lord, you've made me glad. Lord, at what you've done, I sing for joy. So so worship is actually about a heart that enjoys God, enjoys being with him, enjoys who he is. So C.S. Lewis is actually quite helpful here, as usual, as he usually is. Uh, As he wrestled with God's command to worship him, he was was kind of confused, like, what what does this mean? Why does God command us not just to, you know, obey him or thank him, but he he commands us to, to praise him, to worship him? He didn't really understand. And as he wrestled through it, here's the conclusion he came to. He said, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. And he gives some examples. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Worship is precisely what Lewis says. The overflow of enjoyment. The overflow of enjoyment. All right, let's get to the second part. So that's the first part of worship is is actually an enjoyment of God. Here's the second part. We're going to go to verse 5. Here's what the psalmist writes. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. This is the second element. How great. This is lifting the Lord high or in reality recognizing how high the Lord is. This is saying, Lord, how wonderful, how marvelous you are. And to put it another way, it's when our hearts reflect the worth of God. That God is worthy of our worship. It's when we respond and lift high his greatness because he is great. And lift high his kindness because he is kind. Or enjoy his beauty because he is beautiful. That's worship. Worship is when we recognize who God really is and we respond rightly. We respond rightly. Worship is finding pleasure in the person of God, not simply doing the right things. It's being a person that's captivated and satisfied and enjoying and reflecting God's worth. That's worship. That's what God designed you and I for. And in the busyness of life, it's really, really easy. I can speak from experience. Really easy to lose sight of this goal. Whether it's you're preparing for exams or you have a stressful work life or you're just running around caring for small kids, uh, that you're just, you're, you're constantly going. It's easy to lose sight. Maybe it's even just saying yes to too many things, that you're overstretched on your capacity. And it's so easy to lose sight of this goal of worshiping God. But that's not what God wants for us. Especially in this new year, he wants something different. And that brings us to point number two, which is the regular resets that we need to recalibrate our souls to worship. And so that is the gift of Sabbath. So the Sabbath was originally instituted as an ordinance for God's people in the Ten Commandments. It was uh, one day out of seven to rest from work and labor for 
um, enjoyment and also for corporate worship. And so uh, the, the reason that we practice it, I mentioned it before, is that God gave us a model when he created the world in Genesis 1. He created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so he says, follow my model. So the Sabbath was a restorative practice. It was intended to be a blessing to the people in Israel, both to, you know, the, the mothers and fathers, but also the children, the servants, the immigrants that were among them. This is a restorative practice for Israel. So one key question, and I'll hit this kind of at the beginning here, that is worth discussing, discussing amongst Christians is whether or not the Sabbath is still, you know, required today for Christians as it was in the Old Testament. I think that's a worthy question that we should talk about. Uh, and the, really the reason that it is an interesting question, we, we observe the other Ten Commandments. We would consider it sin if we don't obey them. But is the Sabbath the same? And why wouldn't we categorize the Sabbath in the same way? Well, I'm going to try to put the issue really briefly because we don't have quite enough time. But Romans 14, 5 and 6, you can go look it up later if you'd like, seems to put the, ob- the question of observing the Sabbath on the issue of Christian conscience. So if a Christian chooses to observe the Sabbath, he does so to the glory of God. If a, choosen- if a Christian decides not to observe the Sabbath, he does so to the glory of God. Uh, however, and, and both should be persuaded in, in his or her mind, which is w- what is right. However, in kind of my estimation, whether or not the Sabbath is required for Christians, it's wise. It's wise for us to take one day in seven, a worthy pursuit to cultivate hearts of worship. I asked my wife in preparing for this, uh, hey, Jess, do you think that the Sabbath is still required for Christians? I was kind of curious what she'd say. And she's like, well, let me think of a good illustration. It's kind of like saying, is your vacation time required? No, but I mean, why wouldn't you take your vacation time? That's the idea. It's like, it's intended to be a blessing. So why wouldn't you take it? It reminds me of the verse where God says that his commands are not burdensome to us. His commands are not burdensome. So there's not a lot of detail in the Old Testament on really what, what took place on the Sabbath. We don't have like these details of, oh, on the Sabbath they did this and this and this. Not really a lot there. But Psalm 92 does give us a few cues as, at least. Uh, what Psalm 92 tells us is that the Sabbath was not just this time of sitting around and doing nothing, but the Sabbath is really a worship day. It's intended to be a day devoted to worship. Here's how the, the psalmist starts off the psalm. Verse 1 and 2. If you want to read along with me, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So right away, this psalm starts off with praise. There's almost a sense that the psalmist is reflecting back on Genesis 1 and and reading Genesis 1 where God said things like, uh, and let there be light, and and it was good. The psalmist says the same thing about praise. When you and I praise God, he says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's like he's saying, when you praise God, the Lord looks back at you and says, yeah, that's good. That's good. I love that. That's how God views your and my my praise. It is good. And the psalm also demonstrates that we are pausing from our works with an intentional focus on God's works. That's another thing that the Sabbath does for us. It allows us to kind of kind of try to get rid of our self-absorption to become more God-absorbed. Here's what the psalmist writes in verses 4 and 5. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. See it? Do you you see what, what we're saying? How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. There's a heavy emphasis on the works of God. 
God has done it all. Again, there's, there's sort of is this call back to Genesis 1. Like the psalmist is sitting outside, reading Genesis 1 and looking at the stars and the colors of life, and he's saying, wow, this is amazing. I love this. Or maybe he's even sitting and looking at the people in his life and saying, wow, look at what God has made. All of these wonderful people. Lord, how great are your works. How great are your works. The Sabbath helps us remember that we're called to be more than just servants. We're called to be sons and daughters who enjoy their Heavenly Father. But it's not only creation that the psalmist has in mind, but it's also the work of redemption that the psalmist has in mind. It's like they're sitting when they're thinking, how great are your works? They're remembering what God has done in their lives. They're remembering, hey, remember, brother, sister. Hey, remember when we were slaves in Egypt and God delivered us. Hey, remember when we were hungry in the wilderness and, and God fed us. Hey, remember, remember when our sins were so many and God forgave us. That, that's what the psalmist is doing when, when he's calling us to meditate on God's work, God's work of, redemp- of creation and also God's work of redemption. So there is still, I'm sure as many of you feel, there is a barrier to our rest. And it's captured in this psalm. And frankly, it, it's, it's the world. Um, whether it's the world of our lives, the, the world of stress and chaos outside, the world of uncertainty, the world of news headlines and wars and evil, the, the devil is still prowling around. And our flesh, even though our sin has been forgiven, it has not fully been eliminated yet from our lives. And there's a lot of crying in our world about this sorrow that, that is still present. But the Sabbath, there seems to be an invitation to, a, to still a different cry. We're going to pick up in verse 5 and read through verse 9. How great are your works, O Lord. This is the cry of the psalmist. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So these verses highlight the reality of the scoffers, of the people who say that the Lord has no right to be worshipped. And this psalm, frankly, labels those people rightly fools. But why? Why are the Psalms are abundantly clear? Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But why are the Psalms so clear? That almost maybe even feels harsh for us. But the Psalms are obviously confronting us here. What makes this person a fool who does not honor God or does not know him? The psalmist tells us there's something that the fool has not considered. Something he doesn't get. Something about reality. And this something is the key to rest. And the fool doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand it. Though the wicked sprout like grass. Which means like the wicked are sprouting up everywhere. There's wickedness everywhere. There's people who don't honor God everywhere. It actually seems here that the fool is frustrated that the wicked keep going. The fool says the wicked are ruling this earth. So I want to rule with him. But what he doesn't understand is the wicked are doomed to destruction. 
The wicked are doomed to destruction. One day soon, this world will have no more wicked. There will come a day when evil is eliminated. There is a day of judgment where God will set everything right. That day is coming. So then what is the foundation of our rest? It's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And that simply means God is in control. So this year ahead, God is in control. He has not lost control. He has a plan for this world, and he will carry out his plan. That's what the psalmist writes at the sort of the climax of the psalm in verse 8. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. The Lord is enthroned. The Sabbath is this cry of the sovereignty of God. My God is still in charge. He's still on the throne. At the end of the day, it will not be Elon Musk's will or Bill Gates' will or Joe Biden's will or the liberal agenda or the conservative agenda that will come to pass. The will of the Lord is what will come to pass. We rest knowing that God does not need us. We rest knowing that he will provide for all of our needs. That is what the Sabbath proclaims. We rest one day per week with confidence in the unlimited God who is always working so that we can rest in our weak limitations. That brings us to the final point this morning, and that's this, the great Sabbath. So much of the history of the Old Testament, while yes, true history in true place and time, is pointing to a, a greater reality. And that, that's actually really true of all life, not just the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is sort of this like really condensed, obviously it, it is God's inspired word. But God created his whole world to reflect him like a mirror, and the same is true for the Sabbath. Paul writes this of the Sabbath in the book of Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. So one reason why the Sabbath is no longer required for Christians in the same way as it was in the Old Testament is that Jesus Christ, in a major way, has fulfilled the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. He himself is the great Sabbath. The way a Christian truly participates in the Sabbath today is by resting in the finished work of Christ. You might be like, where are you getting this from? Well, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this theme in Hebrews 3 and 4, and it's amazing the connection that he draws between the Sabbath and the work of Christ in these verses. Looking back uh, at these verses, the author of Hebrew says in Hebrews 4, 9 and 10, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And even in Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews boldly writes, For we who have believed enter that rest. For we who have believed enter that rest. The way to enter into God's Sabbath rest is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. We, we were all created for a relationship with God. You and I were made for that intimate relationship with God. But our sin our disobedience, our turning away from him broke that relationship. And he let us live with the consequences, live apart from him. But he didn't want us to live that way forever. So he sent his son at the right time in history to come live under the law, live the perfect life that you and I 
uh, should have lived, and he died for our sin on the cross. So that when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, you are, your sins are forgiven and your relationship with God is actually restored and made right again. God comes and takes residence in your life. He comes and lives inside of you. And that person that turns from their sin and turns to Christ in faith becomes God's child. You are part of his family when you do that. When we enter God's true Sabbath rest, we rest from our works. We understand that God has done it all. He's firmly secured for us salvation in the work of Jesus Christ so that we can now truly rest. There's nothing more that we need to do, nothing we have to prove. There's no treasure we need to lay up to ensure our security. We are fully secure in him. Sins forgiven, life eternal forever in him. Guaranteed forever through faith in Jesus Christ. No more guilt looming over our heads. No more societal expectations that must be fulfilled to make you or I acceptable. What is required has been done. We have enough because Christ's work has been done. We hear the echo of Christ's words on the cross in John 19. It is finished. This finished work is the Sabbath rest. This is what the Sabbath has always been pointing to. The Sabbath from the very beginning of creation has always been an image of pointing to Jesus Christ and his finished work. God rested on the seventh day looking forward to the ultimate day of rest in the atonement of Jesus Christ. There is a completion of the Sabbath rest, a final Sabbath, a great Sabbath. It's Jesus. When we participate in that weekly Sabbath rest, we declare that reality. We say, I don't need to keep this constant striving and this constant running around. I have enough in him. I have enough in him. That's what we declare. We remember one day in seven that the greatest and most important work in our lives is the work of Jesus. So as we head into the new year, how do we want to cultivate this heart of worship? How do you want to cultivate this heart of worship? I'll kind of close with what our family typically, our practice does, uh, what, what we do for our practice, and then I'll give some, some challenges and some thoughts for maybe a couple different groups in here. So uh, first, for our family in this season of life, uh, Sabbath, you know, obviously it's, it changes each season depending on kids, no kids, whatever, you know, whatever your work situation is. But right now, we Sabbath on Saturdays with me working on Sundays. And so we try to spend our Fridays knocking out most of our kind of chores around the house or any work or studying. We try to make sure all that is done by the end of the day on Friday so that we could take the whole day uh, on Saturday and really just pursue whatever things are restful, whatever things cultivate that heart of worship. So hopefully this includes some time with the Lord and some time outside, or we often like to go to the library or uh, just spend time with friends. Those are things that we typically find restful. But really the principle is, yeah, whatever you find restful, restorative, helpful in your, in your relationship with God, those are things you should pursue. And I think it's good to also incorporate some level of scripture and, and time together uh, as, a, as a family, if you're living in a family environment right now. Yeah, it doesn't always work out the way that we want it to, uh, frankly. So, you know, we sort of just try to receive whatever the Lord gives us. So, for example, a couple weeks ago, our car broke down on the Sabbath. <laughs> so it's like, kind of got to take care of that, right? <laughs> so that, that's, that's how it is. But again, whatever is generally restful, those are the things that we pursue. Um, and I think one thing my wife and I have, have wrestled with, especially in preparing for this, is like, we do want to be praying and inviting that heart of worship 
more and more into our Sabbath times. And so that's something we're going to be processing through. Okay, so I want to talk to just a few different groups of people. Now you have a little bit of a sense of what, what we do. Uh, that might be in this room. So the first group. I, I want to talk to the people who maybe as I'm talking about rest today, as we head into a new year, this rest seems counter to anything you've ever experienced. It seems like so foreign and life constantly seems exhausting or constantly striving or trying to justify your existence and you've never actually entered into Christ's rest. Maybe this morning is the time when God is inviting you to come into his rest. The moment when God is calling you to rest from all your works and rest in what Jesus has done for you that he's welcomed you into his family through the cross. Even now, it could be just a quiet prayer in your heart. Lord, I believe. When you believe this morning, great news, you enter into God's rest. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, and the second group of people, that's group one. Uh, second group of people. Some of you, as I'm talking about Sabbath this morning, you're like, this is a brand new concept for me. I've never really thought about, like, I don't know that actually people still practice this, and that's okay, uh, but I just want to challenge you. I want to invite you into this regular routine, this regular tradition of God's people. For many of us in this room, the day that we Sabbath will naturally be Sunday, and I think that's good. I think our Sunday corporate worship is like an amazing, amazing thing that God uses, and that's part of our lives as Christians to cultivate that heart of worship. So I think for many of us, it will be Sunday. But perhaps, uh, depending on, you know, your season of life, your work schedule, etc., another day might be preferable. I think that's okay. Again, the focus is on activities that are restful, refreshing, and help you connect with the Lord. Here's maybe just a couple of potential ideas. Rest from your day job. Try to rest from your work around the house. Spend some time reading the Word, praying with your family or out in nature, if you're able to do that. I know it's kind of hard in Michigan winters, but... <laughs> Uh, intentionally enjoying God, whatever you're doing. Maybe spend a few minutes in silence with the Lord, uh, you know, at the first thing that we wake up or before the kids wake up, and maybe consider turning off your cell phone. Th th none of those are rules. You don't have to do any of those, but if any of those are like, yeah, that sounds actually kind of nice, go for it. Uh, you might even be in a phase where you're not quite ready to set aside a whole day. You're only ready to set aside a couple hours. I think that's okay as well. So take a couple hours, and I think that that will be wise and helpful. Okay, lastly, uh, for a number of you who already make Sabbath sort of a regular practice, I just want to encourage you, what, what ways do you want to cultivate this deeper heart of worship in your Sabbath practice? So maybe it's remembering that Christ is our ultimate Sabbath rest and praying that God would help you to actually rest in him. Maybe it's slowing down to enjoy nature. Maybe you want to start reading and meditating on Psalm 92 during your Sabbath time. I've done that a handful of times, and it's honestly pretty helpful. So I found that very refreshing as well. So whatever it is, my hope would be just to encourage you towards worshiping Jesus through Sabbath rest. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for being our Sabbath rest. Lord, you are sufficient for us at all times. Whether, wherever we are in, in this room today, if it's hard for us to see, if it's easier for us to see, Lord, you are enough for us. Help us to let go of the constant striving this year. Yes, yes, Lord, help us to work during the week, but Lord, help us also take these moments and this, these day, a day each week to rest and lay aside that busyness so we can embrace true hearts of joy and worship through the Sabbath. This will all be by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.